Welcome to the podcast. My name is David. Let's save the world. Today, we're talking about othering. This is when you view an entire group of people as different and not compatible with your vision of society. It can be racial or religious or any number of tribal factors, but it's when a person has that us versus them mentality that these people are unfamiliar and dangerous and have to be pushed back against. On this show, we like to talk about these issues in the realm of sci-fi and horror, as well as in the real world. Joining me in a bit will be Dr. Travis Boyce and Dr. Winsome Chunu, the co-editors of a new book called Historicizing Fear, Ignorance, Vilification, and Othering. But first... Freaks is an amazing sci-fi movie about a girl named Chloe who discovers a bizarre, threatening, and mysterious new world beyond her front door after she escapes her father's protective and paranoid control. It's on Netflix right now. I've seen it twice and I love it. And I'm thrilled to welcome the two men who co-wrote and directed the film, Zach Lepofsky. Yep, that's me. I'm here. <laughs> and Adam Stein. Hello, hello. Thanks for having us. First of all, this movie went under my radar until a few days ago. I think it went under a lot of people's radar when it first came out. But everybody's discovering it now on Netflix, which is fantastic because they really need to see this if you're at all into sci-fi. So for the people who don't know who you are, uh, tell us a little bit about how the dynamic duo came together and a little bit about your working relationship as far as who does what, do you fight over things, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, well, we came together, we have a pretty unique origin story where Adam and I met uh, in the summer of 2007, uh, 13 years ago now, because Steven Spielberg and Mark Burnett had a reality television competition for filmmakers. It was basically like American Idol, but for film. And Adam and I were contestants. Uh, I was just in my early 20s, and you had to kind of make a different film every week in a different genre. And just like American Idol, it was on Fox, and America would vote, and they'd have cameras following us around to try and get us to black, you know, say horrible things about each other. And and uh, you know, Adam and I instantly sort of became allies when we were on that show. You know, the funny thing about reality shows is they really try and thrive off everyone you know, being the worst <laughs> they can towards each other. But when you get a whole bunch of indie filmmakers together, everyone's just very supportive and collaborative. And so it didn't make for very entertaining television, but we, we got, we really immediately knew that we were great collaborators and, um, and it was a great spotlight, you know, a great moment to, to kind of show the type of films that we love to make. And we could tell we had the same type of taste after that. We, you know, we each went on to kind of do our own stuff for a while and, just became best friends and cheering each other on and helping each other where we could. And, um, and eventually we sort of many years later found ourselves both sort of at the same, in the same rut, in the same ditch where we were sort of had explored the industry, had tried to get things off the ground, had, had done all the things you're supposed to do and it still wasn't happening. Uh, we had still, you know, we'd, we'd each sort of, tried to get many movies going, had tried to jump onto other people's movies that were going. We'd each been fired off movies that 
weren't going until they were going and then fired us and hired other directors. And so we were both sort of just like, man, what do we do to kind of, you know, take control of our own lives here? And so we decided we had done a little, a few things together, some short films some web series and decided to write a movie together. And that's really sort of where Freaks was born. So you're glad you didn't vote each other out of the house or? <laughs> Very true. Yeah. yeah America, and you mentioned uh, finding it on Netflix. It, it's really cool for us because as Zach said, this was, this was just a, it started as a very indie project where we basically, we had no money, we had no support making it. It was just like anyone who could get together with their friend and say, let's make a movie. When you do something like that, you don't know if anyone's ever going to see it. Most indie films don't really get seen, unfortunately. Um, so it's really beyond all our expectations that it's now on Netflix and and being just, it was on the Netflix top ten for a while. It, it actually topped out as like the number two most popular movie on Netflix, which kind of like was just a complete shock to us um, from where it started. So it's really been overwhelming and, and pretty awesome. Well, one thing about this movie is it completely destroys the the myth that if you're going to do a sci-fi film, you have to spend 150 million dollars on it, or it's not going to be worth seeing. I think that the budget that you guys had, feel free to disagree, uh, I think the budget that you guys had worked in its favor because it, in my opinion, from the outside, it kind of says you can't have a giant blue beam come down from the sky and a bunch of robots come out or anything like that. You have to focus on the characters. You have to focus on the relationships. Can you get into a little bit about what the budget or how the budget affected the creative process of, of the film. Absolutely. Um, you know, we knew going in that we didn't have a lot of money. So uh, we had zero at first. So we just were like, okay, well, what kind of story can we tell? And we started just by making a list of the things that we already knew we had. So we knew we had a house. I actually had a, a, a young kid at the time. So at first we were like, okay, well, if we never get any money to make this movie, we'll just be in it and my son will be the kid. And what kind of movie can we make about that? Um, and that's where the first seed of inspiration for the story came. Sort of experience of being a new dad and seeing the world through a child's eyes as they start to understand the world. You know, Zach and I just started brainstorming the story based on that. And even even after we got, you know, a slight bit of money to actually hire real actors instead of us and my son, we always kept it focused on the kind of real emotional experience of the characters. Because, you know, like you said, we knew we, we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to wow people with spectacle, but we wanted to hook them with story and, and, and really make them feel for the characters and feel all the emotions of the characters and also kind of be on the ride for the mystery of what what's happening in this world. Be curious to find out what's going to happen next. So we really sort of, our whole process of writing focused around that, like figuring out what, what would people, you know, what would surprise people the most or, or where, how can we make them intrigued by where it's going? Um, and the other aspect of it was that in order to get actors to be in it for, for a small amount of money, we knew we had to make the characters really as, as rich as possible. You know, actors love to play interesting characters that have a lot of range where they can cry and, 
and laugh and chew the scenery and yell and scream and fight and, and be tender and all those kinds of colors of the rainbow. That's what they crave to be, you know, in their craft. So we tried to make sure every character had that, had, had all those layers so that we could so we weren't going to be able to pay them to convince them. So we had to give them roles that they would want to. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> the roles had to be the reward. And that had the benefit of, you know, making really kind of multi-layered characters that the audience was interested in watching too. Well, for the most part, the movie's following uh, Chloe, uh, Lexi uh, Kolker, I believe is how you pronounce it. Yep. She's um, most child actors. You go, oh no, there's a kid in the movie. She's amazing in this. Uh, she, I mean, around some heavyweight actors, and she's carrying it. So we're following her around in this movie. She doesn't know what's going on because she's been sheltered and kept in the house. And we also don't know what's going on. So as things are flying her way, she's confused, we're confused. And then, oh, okay, I got you. Was that done to ground us like next to her in her confusion? It was, yeah, I mean, it wasn't really based on confusion. It was more based on perspective. So we really... Like Adam said, we were really inspired by seeing his son grow up, who was learning what the world was. He was learning that, you know, when he woke up because he had a nightmare and he was terrified that that wasn't real and not to be worried about that. And then when he ran into the street and Adam and his wife started screaming <laughs> that he shouldn't do that, even though there was nothing around that seemed to be dangerous, that streets are dangerous, but nightmares aren't. And, and sort of like he's, he's putting together the math of what is the world. And so we were really inspired by that sort of limited scope of perspective that what if we put the audience literally in the perspective of a child, but from the, from scene one, you suspect that this world is different than our current world, than our, the world that we live in. So, so you don't know what is dangerous or not, just like Chloe doesn't. You don't know the things that her dad are saying, if, if he's telling the truth or if he's lying. You, you don't know what's outside that door, just like she doesn't. And it was really done from a place of perspective, to the point where we shot the film from her height. We shot all the angles from only angles where she could see stuff. We don't, we don't really ever, except for really near the end, cut to scenes that she's not in. Uh, we don't really provide the audience with any information that she doesn't have. Just because we, we feel like that strong choice of perspective really, really, really puts you, like you said, sort of next to her um, and really bonds you to her experience. And, and it's really a fun, a fun technique uh, rather than sort of being third person and jumping around to everyone's perspective you know you really understand some of the moral or slash immoral choices she makes later just because you've sort of grown with her and seen sort of how she's learned how the world works and so you even if you may not agree with what she's doing you totally understand why because you've been right next to her the whole way we just thought that was a really you know great way to experience a film it is a bit like being a child because as I mentioned, every five minutes I'm going, oh, okay, now I get this. And okay, now I get this. And so it really was learning about the world as as I'm watching the film. And I thought that was a great way to, to keep me on my toes. As it's a very a, delicate uh, balance to get right. Like we did a lot of work in the script and a lot of work in the edit 
because everyone has a different tolerance for how long they'll go without knowing something. <laughs> sure. Some people will go 45 minutes. Some people go 90 minutes. Some people go five minutes. So like you really have to work carefully um, when you're crafting the story to kind of always be asking questions and always be answering questions so that there's, you're getting that release of learning things, but at the, at the same moment you're asking new questions so that there's always something you're wondering propelling you forward but also not just like tons of questions that are going unanswered. And by the end, generally you want all of them to be answered so that you still feel a sense of conclusion and, and you know, completion. Cause we've all seen TV series that ended and we still had a bunch of questions that didn't get answered <laughs> and uh, it's not a good feeling. So you guys did, I can't imagine a, you know, someone doing this better. It was, a, it was amazing. Ultimately, like you mentioned, this is about family a family that is, uh, unfortunately, maybe not like mine, that are willing to do everything for each other. I mean, they will go to the farthest reach to to help each other out, to rescue each other. I don't want to spoil too much, but they're they're willing to do anything for each other. But at the same time, they have some very real kind of family issues that I do recognize some things that kind of hit me right in the gut. Some of the things that maybe uh, Chloe might've said to her father at some points during the film. Ouch. Uh, so you, you have a child by any chance? <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't, but I was a child and um, maybe not the best one. Uh, so, so how did you guys develop? They feel like a family. Uh, how did you guys develop that relationship between them? I mean, I think some of that just came from the 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 reality of you know having a five six year old uh, while we were writing that was giving us a lot of material um, when he would lose his temper or I would lose my temper and then feel bad about it after, and that sort of that sort of kind of ugly side of parenting that I think is very common isn't seen a lot, you know. It, it, it's it's not seen a lot in other stories uh, about families, but it, it's it's seen in real families, and so we really wanted to kind of be honest about that and kind of show the love and also the the anger that sometimes occurs. Um, I mean, it's often it's very like one sided. Usually, it's just like, oh, that's the abusive, terrible dad, or the, that's the wonderful child. Everyone sort of is one thing. And like Adam was saying, we really wanted to show that you can be all those things at once. You can love your kid, but still lose your temper and then feel bad. And your kid can say, I want you to die. And then two minutes later, say, I love you if you offer them ice cream. Like all of those flavors exist at all times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have a very fiery uh, older, older son who, um, you know, definitely gave us good material. And then, you know, we, we knew... I guess some of it was sort of also, you know, because it is this sci-fi world, we wanted to just sort of imagine and play out like what would really happen if, if, if these things started to develop in the real world, what would, you know, how would people really start to react and what would happen to a family who was going through this? And so we kind of, we also just wanted to, we, we sort of looked back on, on, um, different times in in history when you know really bad uh, discrimination and kind of genocides were happening. Um, I grew up going to a, a Jewish school where we learned a lot about 
the Holocaust and the way that um, families had to kind of hide or hunker down or try to save their kids. Um, in, or lie about who they were. In World War II Europe, like lie about who they were or put their kids with another family or just, you know, hide under floorboards. And so all that stuff was kind of mixed in the soup to really try to get kind of dirty and dangerous about what it would really feel like to be this, to be in this situation. Yeah. And I got, uh, I got a little bit of that kind of almost Anne Frank kind of thought process of they have to hide. If they go outside, uh, bad, you know, people will see them and bad things will happen. Yeah. It's, it's sort of subtle. I mean, like different people get different things from it, you know, depending, I think on what people's backgrounds are, which is great for us. Cause we, we didn't want it to be so on the nose that that was one of the inspirations, but we also wanted it to feel real about like the how cruel people can be to other people who they perceive to be dangerous. I would say that it's timely, but unfortunately, it seems like throughout history, that's been an issue that keeps popping up of every time someone is seen as abnormal or a freak, there's hate towards them. They, you know, they're going to destroy the country. Of course, the Jews will. Of course, Catholics will. Uh, Of course, Muslims will. Whoever comes, they're all going to be the end of everything. So we have to keep them out. So it's certainly timely now. Even during coronavirus, there is a spike in attacks against Asian Americans because, well, coronavirus started in China, so somehow it's going to help matters if I go beat up the person that runs the shop down the street. Yeah, the film has had a bizarrely relevant history. Like the, you know, this film's taken a long time to make. So we started writing it in 2015, early 2015, which was right around the time Trump was running for president, which feels like you know, two decades ago, (laughs) only five years ago. And, you know, when we were writing it, we were, you know, there were at the time, the the sort of topic of the time was sort of illegal immigration in Mexico. And we were writing in in LA and, and, you know, families hiding, you know, their status and that type of stuff was very like of the mind and rhetoric around that was sort of percolating up in a new hate with a new hatred that hadn't really been seen in a while. And we were debating how much of that feeling we wanted to put in it because we just were like, well, this isn't really going to be relevant by the time the movie comes out because Trump won't get elected and, you know, things will go back to normal. And, and, and then, you know, and you skip forward a few years, by the time the film was at the Toronto Film Festival at its world premiere, it was 2018, so it was three years after that. And the summer of 2018 was right when, children were being separated from their parents and put in prisons and like, and everyone was sort of asking us, well, like, how did you, you know, how did you guess that that's what's going to happen? And unfortunately, like Adam said, we sort of tried to look at all the different discriminations and genocides and persecutions that had happened through history. And, and you see a lot of the same patterns, like, you know, like I live in Canada where we had the residential school system where they took Aboriginal children away from their parents to try and make them good, you know, Catholics and stuff and, um, and just, you know, destroy their, their culture. Um, and that's happened in throughout history in many different times. And so things were happening in present day that were just, we, that we had just put in the movie because they happened in the past and we just kind of went, well, what would be the logical next step? 
And then now the film, you know, has come out on Netflix sort of two years after that. Um, and we're all like in quarantine and everyone's telling their children, if you go outside, people, you know, you'll, you'll die. And like, it's sort of like the films had this sort of bizarrely. Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate kind of, that it's, it stays relevant. Yeah. Kind of at each stage of its life cycle. And I think part of that is probably just coincidence. The other part is that we, Adam and I just at every stage, just tried to ask ourselves, well, what's happened before and what would that be in this world? And then we just try to apply that to every stage. And, and so it felt real and felt grounded, but at the same, you know, history repeats itself. We've known that for a long time. And, and I think sort of that's been a weird entity that's sort of gone along with the history of this film. Well, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I hope in the very near future, your film is no longer relevant. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But uh, unfortunately, I, I tend to think that it's going to be, even in the, the sci-fi geek fandom there's been a toxic hate minority you know we've had kelly marie tran in star wars got a lot of racist hate which is kind of it's strange to me because you look back at the twilight zone you look at star trek we've always had a political cultural commentary in sci-fi and there's people now who seem very angry about that did it really cross your mind at all? Or do you just like maybe make sure that you're not, I guess, hitting people over the head with the message or? No, I mean, uh, that, that never really came up, um, in terms of pulling punches. I like that the movie's political. Um, I think we didn't want to make it too like hit you over the head with it. We didn't want to make it preachy. We didn't want to make it preachy. We just wanted you to experience the story and really care about these characters and feel the injustice and feel the, the fear that they're feeling to kind of have the audience be in their shoes rather than preach a message, but, but rather feel the experience. That was kind of our goal with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so I've always felt like sci-fi is at its best when it's just, you know, it's a mirror to our world today. You, you take, some some element of t- t- today's society and then you fabricate a, a, a different society where that has been sort of pushed to an extreme to kind of explore those themes and there's also, there's also something cool you can do with sci-fi because by taking an idea and then twisting it like you know like exploring racism but with aliens you can kind of remove yourself from uh the specifics of whatever issue it is you're talking about it doesn't have to be both black and white it can be about green and purple (laughs) and so you kind of are allowed to explore the topic with a little bit more um just sort of creativity rather than just like being historically accurate or being on one side or the other that's that that's always been my love of sci-fi and um and we just try to do it in a way where even if you don't really pick up any of that stuff you can still enjoy the movie and and also that you know if you are maybe on the opposite side of the political aisle Maybe you watch the movie and you come out of it with a little more empathy or thinking differently than you did before. And it's been kind of interesting now that it has gotten a lot of um, people watching on Netflix. I've seen some kind of unexpected things on Twitter, people reaching out, like, because I have a very political Twitter, you know, stream where I post a lot of uh, liberal stuff. I've had a couple people who saw Freaks, some, some sort of, uh, you know, right-wing people who, who liked freaks come onto my Twitter and be like, 
you should just keep making great movies and stop posting political stuff. And I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe you didn't, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I'm glad you liked the movie at least. Maybe, maybe that opened your mind a little bit, but maybe you missed it. I don't know. So there, there's, that was also had like groups of neo-Nazis, you know, downvoting the film on Amazon and things like that. But yeah, that's, been that's a, true. That's been yeah. a minority. There, that was, that was, uh, you know, we haven't been harassed like, like Kelly Marie Trant by any means, but there was a, a sort of scary thing when a group of neo-Nazis started posting about the movie and talking about these, these, uh, two Jews who made this movie that's like, you know, got Anne Frank overtones. They were very upset about it. It's like, well, a scary. I, I would say that, uh, to the, to the viewing public, in general, it's better to be on the opposite side of the neo-Nazis. So <laughs> uh, just, I mean, pick your subject Definitely. and it's best to be on the other side. So watch the movie and enjoy it. I don't know if you guys saw, but just the other day, someone posted um, uh, on James Gunn's Twitter about don't make Suicide Squad 2 political. You don't see great movies like V for Vendetta or Watchmen being political. <laughs> like, uh, well, okay. yeah. At least, at least they can enjoy, you know, whatever they can enjoy. But yeah, the that's the thing is like a film is to be interpreted by however the viewer wants to interpret it. Like we we create what we want to create, and and we create it with a variety of goals, and it's up to the viewer to kind of experience it however they want to experience it. So like. I never thought when we started out that there'd be neo-Nazis that cared about this film. I was kind of flattered that like we, we had reached that level of, of impact. Maybe we touched one of them. You never know. Yeah. Which, you know, and I think that it definitely is subtle enough in this film. You know, there are times, even if it's a, a message that I agree with, there are times where you go, Oh boy, you're really sacrificing the characters and story to give this message out. But this one doesn't do that. It's it's a natural part of the of the story, and I think that it you guys do a really great job with it. And as part of that, as you as one of you mentioned earlier, there's not really any classic bad guys in this film. There's no classic good guys in this film. In that, the the people we're following and cheering for, they sometimes do stuff in this film that I don't think is very good. And then the bad guys, they're just, they're doing what they think is right. Now, I can agree or disagree with that. I mean, obviously, I disagree with killing people on site and stuff like that. That just seems like a very tricky uh, <laughs> th- uh, way of developing characters of, yeah, we're not going to give you the, we're, we're going to make you root against the good guys sometimes with their actions. Uh, tell me about how about how that developed. That was a very, very um, conscious choice. And it actually started from, um, I think, from that same initial brainstorming. My son was very interested in the idea of good guys and bad guys and what makes a good guy, what makes a bad guy. And I think our first thought for the movie was, what if you had a family of supervillains, basically, or, or people who the world thinks are supervillains, and you had a kid who was growing up in that family, what would that feel like? Well, they wouldn't think that they were bad guys. You know, to them, the people hunting them are the bad guys. So just that that idea of perspective and how 
everyone has reasons for doing the things they do and they all everyone does things everyone's the hero of their own story and everyone thinks what they're doing is the right thing to do and so really trying to craft very grounded realistic reasons why each person is doing what they're doing and then constantly switching the audience making them like you said at the beginning how the, how you feel like a kid discovering this world trying to figure out this world thinking you understand it so you think someone's a bad guy and then you get to know them more and you realize no wait they're actually they actually mean well and vice versa constantly trying to figure out what's really making the people tick it's like a balancing act because if you look at each of those turns it's around the same time that another character's turning so one character is a villain another character is a hero and then as one character starts to turn into a bit of a someone that you're now liking another hero, another character is turning into someone you don't like so there's you have to make sure there's always sort of an antagonistic force that's sort of sure. being the pressure cooker of the film so but you can move that around between the characters and you know even even our lead character we, you know she's someone you're you're really rooting for but we even wanted by the time the film ends that you're sort of questioning you know who she's become yeah and i mean it's uh it uh, it's a balancing act but man did you guys do it with a bunch of characters uh that you know and it all made sense to me as far as the motivations and everything they all felt like real people making the best decisions they feel like they could make even when it's a horrible decision that I completely disagree with. The other thing that I that was had a lot we had a lot of fun with was the idea that not just of good and evil, but like good at what they're trying to do and bad at what they're trying to do. Like basically, are they screw ups or not? Because that's something you often don't see. Usually in a movie, it's sort of like some hero has a plan and then they do. You know, they encounter some obstacles, but then they do it. Everyone had a lot of fun with the idea that, that regular people. <laughs> have plans that are really bad or that are not thought out. And, and, you know, especially the, the, the Bruce Dern kooky father-in-law always has a scheme. It's like, no, not another scheme, Alan. And we just had a lot of fun with like how they could have done it better if, if they had only thought it through a little more, because that's kind of how real life is. People aren't perfect at, at, you know, making their life plans. And often like when, when Adam and I were, were writing, we'd often come, you know, there are certain genre tropes that you've seen in tons of movies, like, and we would sort of ask ourselves, like, okay, so we need to do this next plot point, you know, we need to break someone out of this place, or we need to, they need to find out this information or whatever. And you, the first things that come to mind are like, okay, they're going to hack into the national security system and learn and like decode the blah, 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 or they're going to, you know, like all these sort of things that aren't accessible to everyday people and also just sort of felt like you've seen it and it's unoriginal. And so Adam and I would have a lot of fun just going, okay, if you and I had to do this, if you and I were faced with this problem and we had to solve it in the next 20 minutes, like we don't know how to hack a system. Like like, we couldn't do that. What would be the plan? What would be the plan that you and I would come up with? And we would, debate it back and forth like we literally have to do it and a lot of the times like the debates in the scripts are literally the different ideas that we we came up with and the counter arguments of like what are you an idiot that would never work because you get arrested the second you step outside oh yeah okay well we can't do that and we often write those arguments into the script because it's kind of fun or we just actually give that idea to the character and then it goes horribly wrong we just sort of 
it gives it sort of this groundedness that is sort of more fun than just they can do everything at a super high level and feels less sort of tropey. Like, for example, Bruce dresses up like a priest to go talk to this federal agent. And he thinks he's being really clever and, and pulling one over on her. But she is never fooled in our minds. It's like, you know, that you don't really see that very often where, where a character just like really tries something and just completely fails. But it happens a lot in life. Yes, it does. Uh, unfortunately, yes, it does. This feels like a world that you guys, I mean, Chloe might not know at all, all that stuff, but it feels like you guys know the world very well. How much of the surrounding, say, past, future, what happens outside that neighborhood, how much of thought that has been thought out now that it's a big hit? Sequel? <laughs> well, we've done, I think one of the benefits of having two of us is that when you're writing by yourself, you tend to just sort of write down your first ideas or you kind of write down things that instinctually you think you want. But when there's two of you, you have to kind of justify it. Like if you're like, okay, well, this is what's in the world. This is what they do. The other person will go, well, why? Why is it that way? And you have to have an answer. And if you don't, the other person will say, no, that's not good enough. What would what would it actually be? And because of those basically years of, of doing that on this project, we built out a very, very, very detailed world that you don't really see. Like Adam and I have so many more details about this world than are in the film. At some points, some of them were in the film and then just got sort of kind of moved to the background. And it wasn't like we wanted to build out a whole world of detail. It's just as you're collaborating and sort of debate, debating why things would be one way or another, you have to come up with things that convince both of us. And so the, the kind of side effect of that is, is, is something that feels like a very rich world. And a lot of people kind of say when they watch the film, it feels like you're seeing a sliver of a much bigger world. Um, and well, we also wanted to have lots of layers like that are, yeah. that are there in the movie, but like Zach said, they're in the background. So it makes you feel like the world exists beyond the edges of the frame. And and even some in some cases it is right on the edge. Like in the in the diner, there are um, federal propaganda posters that we had made that are barely visible, like in the edges of frames in, that are posted in the diner that like nobody would ever notice. But it it kind of gives you a sense of of the world existing outside what you're seeing. It when in the in the very beginning of the the montage showing their house dad is asleep while the TV's on and it's showing like a home shopping network thing on the TV and they're advertising home detection kit flashlights for detecting freaks in your home. And it's, that's not something that's ever a plot point. It was just like, what do we put on the TV in this shot? And so we brainstormed, put that in there. And, and I think it has, there's sort of like maybe a subconscious effect of, of, of making this world feel more real. And you both, uh, which I, I, I love all of that, but sequel. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. A, well, lot, of people, a we, lot of people want to know now. You know. There's a lot of stuff that we cut out. There's a lot of ideas we have of what happens next. Um, we're very ex excited to, you know, we, we wanted to make it a, a self-contained story because like, the movie's all about a girl trying to find her mom from the very first scene. That's what she's trying to do. And 
and and so the the we felt like the movie you know had a distinct end there um but we we definitely have ideas for what happens next it's just if if someone yeah everyone should call all their local um studio executives and television executives and <laughs> write to Netflix. Yeah. Write to your congressman about how much you want a sequel and that will help greatly. I, I am positive Netflix is looking at those results and going, Hmm. I so. Uh, so if you were a little bit coy on that one, I'm going to hit you with something else. You guys, uh, from your uh, previous work, uh, have a, a good working relationship. It seems with Disney. Uh, this movie, this movie has shades of X-Men in it. I fully endorse you right now at this moment to get this gig. Have there been any discussions between the two of you and Marvel about X-Men? <laughs> I wish. No, not yet. Marvel has not called yet, but uh, we've definitely, you know, we, we've had sort of two careers. One's been doing these genre thrillers. The other has been doing sort of action adventure st- uh, kind of family stuff with, with Disney. But Disney has many wings and many arms and it is a, it is a huge corporation with uh, many entities. And um, we've, we've had, you know, it's, we've definitely had exciting meetings over there, but Marvel and X-Men has not been one of them. But of course, uh, if it was, we would be we would be eager. And, you know, I've always felt like X-Men was touching on things that a lot of the other Marvel stuff didn't. And sometimes it was over the top and sometimes it was subtle. I was always more excited by the subtle, the subtle stuff. I remember in one of the X-Men movies, like the human torch is like trying to come out to his family that, you know, he can light on fire and they, (laughs) it's like, it's a very personal scene. And oh, it's like, Iceman, yeah. Oh, Iceman, yeah. Sorry, I got yeah. it wrong. It's been like a decade since I've seen that. Sure, film. yeah. And he's trying to come out to his family, and and then they reject him, and you know, and then of course the house explodes, and which caught the torch is fantastic for Come on. Yeah, of course. My 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 bad. But uh, <laughs> there I go. I just got I just ungot us the job. But you know, it was those types of moments that I always thought were kind of when X Men was at its best, and and you know, it was kind of funny they. They have that film New Mutants that was that's been highly highly delayed uh, many times and sort of many times throughout the making of Freaks we were like oh boy is New Mutants going to come out and take our thunder or not or because it seems like a more kind of grounded darker take but it's still yet to come out so we kind of you know luckily it got delayed enough to, that we beat it to us to the punch. Well, th- it feels to me like this is um, oh boy. I am not comparing it to X-Men Origins, okay? Uh, the Wolverine movie. But it feels like an X-Men origin done right of, hey, this is this this is the start of a world and uh, more is to come. I think you guys would be the perfect choice for Marvel to dump a big budget on and make an X-Men movie because in your film, you're able to hit all of those cultural notes uh, in a way that you know, as you sometimes you know, it x-men's done it done it really well and sometimes it's uh yeah, not I mean, we love like logan i thought was a great example yes. like, sort of the type of movie that we would more like to make so uh, oh, you guys making a oh you're killing me over here come <laughs> on marvel come on uh well if they if they take your call you can tell them that we're we're eager <laughs>
the thing we always said about the freaks world is it's like the X-Men world, except there was never a professor Xavier. There was never someone who said, let's get these people together and have them do good. We also promised ourselves that we're never going to cut to the president. We're never going to cut to the congressman. We're never going to cut to like the people in charge. It's always about like the, what's happening in the living room, not what's happening in the Oval Office. So, and, and, and there's no one who's like uh, trying to take over the world, and there's no one who's trying to save a bunch of strangers. It's just people trying to live their lives. People just saying, can't we just go to the, go to the grocery store and get some ice cream? So it's sort of like uh, we found that interesting to think about what would if, – if superpowers really did develop in the world – Nobody, possibly nobody would go out there and start saving people and, or fighting crime. You know, they would just kind of still. Nobody, nobody does that nowadays. So yeah, why nobody, would they... <laughs> nobody go, is going right now to, to, you know, just kind of save strangers um, or, or, you know, fight bad guys. So if they had powers, they probably wouldn't do that either. Maybe they would use it for themselves here and there, so they'd become a little bit of, of criminals, you know. But they, they probably wouldn't want to take over the world either. They would just kind of want to get back at their ex or something, um, something small. So we always thought, like, what is the small version? What is the more human version of this? And what would happen to the world if that was the world? Because th- there's, no, um, there's no freak in this world who is a hero that people can point to and say, Oh, but look, some of them do great things. It's, you know, it's just a world full of fear and suspicion. And in some ways, uh, agent Ray, who's, who's the villain you were talking about before, in some ways she's trying to be that professor X. She's going about it in a very sort of callous way, but she's her stated objective is to kind of adopt Chloe and train her to be, a hero, you know, to be a good guy in this world. So we, we, we had fun kind of like, you know, experimenting with those ideas. But like in the real world, when someone is different, you, uh, fear them, you think you're going to be replaced and, uh, think that those people have to go. Um, (laughs) so, uh, it is uh, the feel good hit of the summer folks. Um, (laughs) but it is an amazing movie. Uh, tell me before I let you guys go, uh, please tell me what is next. Is there anything that you can tell me about that is uh, r- ready to go? I don't think we can. I mean, everything we have is sort of cooking. The film industry has very, very long cook times and very, very big ovens uh, where they cook many, many things and only one of them comes out of the oven. So we we're basically writing right now. We're writing three yeah. different scripts. Um, you know, one of the great things about making this movie has been that it's opened a lot of doors for us. So now. For the first time in our lives, we're actually getting paid to write, which is like such a wonderful, you know, blessing. And we feel very lucky. Whether any of those things will actually ever get made, we have no idea. Because <laughs> a lot of things that get written get shelved and never get made. Uh, so that'll be the next step. All right. Thank you both so much for joining me. Uh, what an honor it has been to speak with you before you uh Go off and make big, big blockbuster movies. Uh, so thank you both very much. Thank well, you so thanks much. so much. And, and everyone who, who's seen the movie, please reach out. We're both on Twitter, Instagram, whatever. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. And for those who haven't seen it yet, watch it now. Come on. Uh, thank you very much, guys. 
And unfortunately, Othering is not limited to the realm of sci-fi. It takes place all too often here in the real world as well. With me to discuss that are the editors of an informative new book called Historicizing Fear. She is the Associate Director of Multicultural Programs at Ohio University, Dr. Winsome Chunu, and he is the Associate Professor and Program Coordinator of Africana Studies at the University of Northern Colorado, Dr. Travis Boyce. Thank you both for being here and welcome. Glad to be here. Thank, Thank you. you. I'm happy to be here. I'm, I'm really glad to be talking with you. Um, the sci-fi community deals with this sort of thing, and I really hope that people will be educated by uh, what's in your book and uh, what you guys are, uh, have to say. Starting with current events uh, that aren't covered in your book, um, you know, when I first started reading um, the book and it talked about our society's perception of uh, black uh, masculinity, and mm-hmm. as I'm reading. I am hearing on the news behind me about uh, Ahmad Arbery, a black man was going for a jog and ended up getting chased down, cornered, and shot uh, by a couple of uh, white guys who, um, well, they thought since he was running, he must be committing a crime. Mm -hmm. Um, So... (laughs) Just to get you, can I get your thoughts? Uh, you know, we'll just, we're having a conversation. So whoever wants to speak up, um, can I get your thoughts on that case in particular? And then how it relates to society's perception of ma- uh, black masculinity, uh, as the, the book uh, talks about? What, what I'm seeing here, and uh, David, so I, I'm more of, I, I study and I teach uh, United States history, American history. Uh, particularly African-American history from the Reconstruction period to the present. And so what I'm seeing with this situation is that it's the same narrative. I mean, almost like they're using the same playbook uh, to vilify this man, Uh, particularly conservative right-wing media, uh, racist, neo-Nazis, to justify the shooting. And what I've What's fascinating about this is that there's always a justification. There always has to be this narrative that, you know, this guy had to be doing something wrong. Uh, So that's what's particularly troubling about that, because if we just look at historically of uh, particularly the, the vilification of black men, you know, for example, in the early 20th century, the low point of race relations where lynchings were justified. So the the person, the, the victim of the lynching, likely a black male, was guilty of doing something deviant, likely a sexual assault, uh, sliding a white person on the middle of the street or something like that. So this is what I find interesting about that, that this country really hasn't changed at all. Uh, it just, it's going back to the same playbook uh, with regards to how law and order, and the justification of killing a Black person is justified. I agree with everything Travis just said. And David, I wish I really, really, really deep down in my loins, (laughs) I wish 
I could say some shit like, this is so surprising. We've come a long way. <laughs> but, you know, in all of this, we need to be positive because now it's when, with the district attorney and all that. You know, fuck that shit, man. Like, no. This is some bullshit right here. And we've seen this bullshit over and over again. And we're tired of it. Mm -hmm. Dude went running. Dude and his dad roll up, killed him. Then the other dude captured it on tape. And if you look at all the memes that are coming out, it's people are not hyped now. People are hyped because we are able to see what's on the tape. Otherwise, already they put a video out, uh, pictures out of Ahmad Arbery at a site. At, there is a home that's been constructed and he's mm -hmm. there. And right. so right away, we know exactly what's happening right now. It's sure. been framing him as, uh, as a thief and looking for stuff. It's gaslighting to say he shouldn't have been there. It's all this kind of language and narrative that we tend to see around othering. Right. Because right. by doing that, you're now beginning to put doubt in people's minds. Hmm. He should not have been out there. He and then yesterday, the construction guy in the area came out and said, there had not been any robberies. So he didn't know where that narrative was coming from. It's the same old, the same thing we saw with Trayvon and the hoodie, the yep. same narrative we saw with Mike Brown being a mm -hmm. bigger, tall guy who is then kind of thought about as having this overwhelming presence. And so this timid white person got scared. You know, fuck that shit. Mm hmm. Well, I, I, unfortunately, I think we know where the narrative's coming from. It's not a good place. And, and we even see that the law enforcement folks were sweeping it under the rug as much as possible. If we hadn't seen the videotape, we wouldn't be uh, we wouldn't know his name. Absolutely. We wouldn't. And if right. you, one of the things that is often comes up about with law enforcement is so they talk about in the hood, and I'm using that in quotes because I find that term problematic as it is, that there is a no snitch policy. And they talk about, well, it's the same in law enforcement. That's what law enforcement officers do. They protect each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if you are saying to people, you need to come forward, you need to let us know, but then you are doing some of the same things it's kind of like Trump talking about anti-bullying. Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, uh, what is the first lady, uh, what is it? The Be Best, Be Best. program. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a, it's a meme. It's, it's, it's a farce. I, but you're right on the, you're right, Winston. Absolutely. And one other current event I, I know in, uh, Virginia is still dealing with coronavirus. Uh, I'm sure you guys are as well. Uh, there's been anecdotal reports. Uh, I don't know how widespread this is of blacks going to the hospital, not being taken seriously oh. and, and then dying. And then also on the flip side of that, look, 
I know a lot of white people, and I'm white myself. Uh, I know a lot of white people who didn't think Colin Kaepernick should have been kneeling, didn't think Black Lives Matter should have been out in the streets, but they are all over the streets protesting the idea of staying at home and watching Netflix. Right. <laughs> now, but in New York, I, ju- I saw something where 40 people were uh, were given citations for social distancing uh, issues. Uh, 35 of them were black, yeah. uh, f- four Hispanics, and one white person, yeah. which again, that's anecdotal, but I know a lot of white people that are protesting this thing. So from from the healthcare uh, standpoint, is there a history of blacks not getting access to proper health care or, or not being taken seriously? And then is there a, well, of course there is, a profiling of let's punish minorities for the same crime that white people are, are, are participating in? Yeah, Dave, this, David, this is where I, um, I go with, uh, yeah, and water is wet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, you got a lot. Oh, yeah. A lot of white people are like, "No, no, this isn't the case." Of course, oh, it's yeah, the case. of course, we know because because what we tend to see with those of us who study diversity is when people are not experiencing something personally, mm-hmm. it doesn't resonate with them in the same way. Plus, white people are also, in general, not all white people, whenever it comes to this kind of topic, tend to be apologists. So they have to kind of make it known that not all white people believe this stuff. Not all white people are racist. Not all white people are so-and-so. And so they do what we do, but the way we do it is we're just trying to protect our people. We're trying to say, like, cut us some slack, give us a break. We're not all the same. Please, I'm begging you. Please listen to me. Please, please, please. We want to be a part of the mainstream society. Please. When we do it, that's the vein that we do it in. When white people do it, it's like, you know, I don't want you to think all white people are the same. My grandparents marched with MLK. Exactly. (laughs) There is a history of healthcare similar to other groups and not just black people. We see the same thing happening on the Navajo plantation, the Navajo plantation, the Navajo reservations right now, but they might as well be plantations for the way we treat Native Americans in this country. I mean, a lot of it is reflective of the plantation narrative in terms of how people are suffering, although they do not have a white master leading them. But the white master in the in in this case is the is the government, whether it's a state government like the the governor's doing now in the Dakota saying they need to not do these checks of people coming in. And they're like, no, we have to. Doctors Without Borders is heading to the Navajo Nation. Doctors Without Borders are usually in developing countries. They're heading to the Navajo uh, reservations. What what is that saying about us as a country? Right. And the division that exists. And so, yes, if we go back to the history of healthcare, Black women, for example, slaves were so in gynecology. So the founder of gynecology, et cetera, 
There were black women who were cut open, who they did all these treatments on for cervix, for, for uterus, etc., without any kind of painkiller, anything, where all that information came from. And right. then we go to Tuskegee, and Travis, you can pick up at Tuskegee, mm-hmm. just in case so uh, the listeners can understand that what we're saying, although we're mad passionate about this shit, is that it is rooted in the history of our country. Exactly. And uh, before I just talk briefly about Tuskegee, it's important for the audience to understand uh, there's a, a really cool mockumentary documentary slash mockumentary called the confederate states of america um which is hilarious partly hilarious partly scary because it's actually a reflection of our present day reality um where it looks at a scenario of an alternate world if the confederate states of america won the american civil war uh but where i'm getting that from is that there is a part in the film uh, which I didn't realize was not true until a few years later when I did some research on it. A medical doctor during the antebellum period, his name was Dr. Samuel Cartwright, he uh, coined the term dreptomania. That was a, a, a term to diagnose unruly Blacks, enslaved Blacks. And it's this concept of a mental illness that they desire freedom. So therefore, there's some type, there's something fundamentally wrong with them. And so uh, going back to what Winston's saying, all this stuff is rooted uh, historically uh, within the context of the founding of this country, which was based on the subjugation of Black people. So we do have to start there um, when we look at what's going on in the present day. If we like move I up- said, we've been dealing with this shit since the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And if we move forward to uh, the 20th century, uh, the Great Depression era, there was uh, in Tuskegee, Alabama, uh, there were about 300 African-American men who were who had syphilis, poor blacks, tenant farmers, etc. And the federal government came in. Uh, what I found that was interesting is that they worked uh, collaboratively with Tuskegee Institute, the Historical Black College, um, and gave the and black men without treating them properly. And this was not even discovered until 40 years later in the 1970s, when the last rem- remaining members of this experiment were uh, dying off and their families uh, took them to justice. And then 20 years later, President Bill Clinton was the one, the uh, first U.S. president to openly acknowledge and apologize for the Tuskegee experiment. So, I mean, we see these things all the time in this nation's history. Uh, But those are two good examples uh, with regards to how Blacks are, and particularly, or in general, um, are uh, not taken seriously within the context of the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And so there are two other things within the healthcare system. So if we look at Henrietta Locke, the um, the Black woman whose, uh, whose cells have been used 
to arguably pioneer all the some of the not all some of the major uh the major treatments major vaccines etc was a black woman and she got cancer and they recognized that her cells produced reproduced really quickly and fast they harvest her 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 they harvest them and have used them for years and it's only recently as a matter of fact oprah did uh there was a not a mini series a movie on her right. and there is right. also a book written about um henrietta lock and yeah. so black people have been used in this way for for for, for decades centuries mm -hmm. even and for those of you who really want to be honest for if anyone is a researcher who's uh, listening the tuskegee is one of the driving forces behind why why we have to get uh IRB institutional review board approval when when you're conducting research with people it, it informs that because what they do not want is for people to be abused. And I want to point out that uh, uh, watching a conspiracy theory video on YouTube does not count as research. Um, Thank you. Exactly. No, it does not. <laughs> uh, it's a little more involved than that. It's above my pay grade. But uh, yeah, this is a, you know, we deal with sci-fi and horror movies here. I don't know if you guys saw the Watchmen miniseries that was on HBO recently. Yeah. Uh, but it dealt with uh, a real event uh, in uh, the Tulsa massacre of what mm -hmm. was called, I guess, uh, Black Wall Street. Mm -hmm. I hear a lot of of white people that say, "Well, why don't they just pick themselves up by their bootstraps? Why uh -huh. don't they? Why, why don't they? Uh, you know, focus and dedicate themselves to improving their status in life." In the book. Uh, there's uh, talk of uh, uh, sun in your book, historicizing fear. Um, there's talk of the sundown towns, and it mm -hmm. seems to me that, and you would know the history much better than I would. It seems to me that every time there has been a community attempt to raise themselves above, well, white people are there to say, "No, you can't Not do so that." Not so fast, exactly. An example, and again, if we want to look at films as a case study, uh, we can look at the film Rosewood uh, oh. that came out in the 1990s. Rosewood was um, the small town in Florida where a young white woman accused, quote unquote, a man of rape, a black man of rape. And ultimately, this uh, very progressive, economically progressive, all black town was burned to the ground due to the false accusations of a rape claim. So absolutely, yeah. So th that's that's the irony of all this is that it goes, it's that quote, you know, the more things change, the more things stay the same. You know, any sign of black progress, whether it's during the reconstruction period to the present day uh, with the election of President Barack Obama, there's always this notion of, of white America's uh, telling black folks not so fast. So absolutely, Dave, you hit that nail on the head. Dave, when I hear this bootstrap um, bullshit, I go to the white people, what more do you want from us? Yeah, I went some, you know what I was thinking about? Um, I, 
I know your question is more of uh, more of a hypothetical, uh, but I think about what's happening now with COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. You know, this majority white protesters, you know, here in Colorado, you know, in uh, Douglas County, and it made the national news yesterday at this restaurant where you know you see majority whites gleefully you know with no mask in these restaurants it's like it's almost homicidal yep so like, they so i go with that and real quickly with the pull yourself up from the bootstrap narrative which is stale and it is old right so if we look at so if we look historically at Tulsa right there were these black neighborhoods Mm-hmm. where they had their own banks, their own shops. They pulled themselves up literally from the bootstrap because unlike other groups, Black people came here as slaves. We didn't, we didn't have our boots to pull ourselves up on, but we found straps anyway. Mm-hmm. Right? And right. so Black people built up this whole neighborhood. Then they came in and they dismantled the whole thing. Whenever there's a black person who is really confident in who they are, et cetera, then they get referred to as the uppity Negro. Because fundamentally, white people are not comfortable with black people who are confident and, and, and want to exert themselves in a confident way because that's not who they are told that we are. And so it's like, what what else do you want from us? Not you, David, but sure. Yeah. Yeah. But well, I mean, and in the cases where we are comfortable with it, we want them to and I know it it's it's a a weird phrase or whatever, but a weird way of saying it, but we want them to be as white as possible if they're uh, going to be comfortable. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, um, you're my dog right there with that. I talk about that as someone who who is involved with doing diversity work on college campuses and with local and state organizations, right? When we say we're looking for diversity, are we, do we just want someone there who looks different, but then when they act different, and I put that in quotes, then all of a sudden it's problematic. So you want a black scholar in your, in your department, but you want them, you don't want them to talk about black scholarship. You don't want them to talk about the challenges that you're seeing with black people, but you want them there, right? You want a black or a person of color in your organization, but it, but you really want them to be white. And one of the things we talk about in diversity work around human resources is the idea of the term fit and what that means. And when, pe- right. when, when white people say fit, what they're looking for is, is this person someone I can bring home as a colleague and we can have dinner and et cetera, right. shoot the shit, blah 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 that's really what you're looking for is mm-hmm. can this person fit in with whiteness and be comfortable with white culture and be a part of my white groups 
without always trying to bring up some race shit and if we go beyond that some gender shit some gay shit some you name it shit that that people <laughs> would bring up and so yeah when people are saying they want people what they want is i want you to act as white as possible right. because then that is going to make me feel comfortable right i was involved with you know groups that were you know protesting the war back during um George W. Bush. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was kind of a mix of people because a lot of Republicans were also, or I guess I'll say libertarian leaning people were against a lot of what Bush was doing. And one thing, and again, this is anecdotal, I'm not saying all, but one thing that I noticed was as soon as Barack Obama became president, the language in those circles that I was in changed and got well it became racist it was no longer well we're against the war and it became very racist and so when people say oh well obama got elected and now we're in a post-racial society and everything's fine yay once i separated myself from that group because i just got uncomfortable with right that <laughs> kind of talk um once i separated i was like you know I don't know that we're in a post-racial America. I think that people weren't – I think people were saying, oh, well, a black person's never going to be president. And once one did, it they got angry. And in my opinion, that is – Trump isn't the cause. He's more the result of – of white rage and oh don't we have a lot to be uh, angry about what a bunch of snowflakes <laughs> we've basically controlled all and i say white people in general have controlled all aspects of society for as long as society has been around in america yeah why why are we so threatened by any advancement whatsoever and then coming off of uh, obama into Trump, is that like a victory for them? I know that's a confusing question, but I'm just uh, musing. Oh, I, I I'm going to answer the latter first. Oh, the, the, Trump is that that guy. Um, and just to speak frankly here, I recall a few years ago, um, I was at a at my barber shop, and this was during the uh, primary season. Uh, the 2016 primary season. And my barber just made this interesting comment saying that if Trump gets elected, he's going to be viewed as the greatest president ever. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? And I see what's happening now. Like for 53% white women that voted for Trump, that will likely stay with Trump, you know, with majority whites and the most recent history supporting Trump, absolutely, Trump is their champion because of what he represents. And he represents this notion that uh, we have to maintain the status quo. Uh, Barack Obama, and what's hilarious about uh, how President Obama, in terms of scandals like the tan suit, uh, him taking selfies, him being much more personable, 
as viewed as scandals is an indictment on or a reflection on how uh, racism is manifested in this country. It's like they could not find anything on President Obama uh, to the point that they are looking for or they're reaching for things and their racism is showing in terms of how Trump is giving a pass in terms of his overt racism. But then again, I suspect this is what what they want. So absolutely. Um, In terms of President Obama, have we reached that post-racial society? Um, As a historian, I encourage folks to look at just uh, the timeline of Black progress in this country. And if you look at the Reconstruction period, uh, that was a period right after the American Civil War, uh, where African-Americans were no longer enslaved, they had the right to vote. As a result of that, African-Americans, particularly in uh, various parts of the American South, were elected to uh, local, state, and most importantly, national offices, um, House of Representatives, the United States Senate. But you saw this uh, backlash with the founding of the Ku Klux Klan, with the founding of the White League, of white vigilantism, uh, and ultimately the overturn of Reconstruction. And if we fast forward, uh, we can draw parallels with the Reconstruction era, those seven, let's see, 1865 to 1877, those 12 years, to the eight years when Barack Obama was in office where you saw a rise in uh, right-wing extremism. At just like the end of Reconstruction, where you have this age of Jim Crow, the end of President Barack Obama's uh, administration is this era of Trumpism, which is far right-wing white extremism. So we're seeing similar parallels uh, in our present day. To the from a historical perspective, that sucks. Um. Yeah, right, right. It's, <laughs> it's it's very gloomy, but I mean, I we have to look at history. That these are just repeated patterns, and we haven't learned from, yes. or maybe we don't want to learn. That is what is critical right here: is understanding right. that, as they would say in the streets, we're not new to the game. These are historical patterns that we've seen over and over and over again. So when we bring them up, it's not because we don't really know, we don't have the evidence. So like David, I I see that, you know, you're saying these are anecdotal evidence, et cetera, but there is research out there that's supporting a lot of what you're talking about. 80% of of the citation for social distancing in New York Work for black people. Mm-hmm. There have been pictures of the cops handing uh, masks to white people, but then citing black people. It's not anecdotal. The evidence is there, staring at people. People just don't want to believe it. Or what white people tend to engage in is cognitive dissonance. Right. Yeah. Because they have a friend. Right, right, right. Well, yeah. Well, what is what's, what's the saying? One of my friends is black. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> they, they always have a friend, or they always yeah. know a black person who never had that experience, and so this one person 
is going to discount the experience of the 13 million African-Americans in this country. This actually goes, this type of othering uh, goes all the way back to the beginning. I remember hearing stories of, well, uh, the white man came over and made friends with the natives and we we were we gave them gifts of blankets <laughs> and see we didn't know it but see we had immunities that they didn't and so accidentally we passed diseases to them and it, it but reading your book there's that was actually biological warfare mhm <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, I grew up being told that was all an accident, but turns out we viewed them as savages and they can't fit in with civilized culture. So we have to do the civilized thing and um, commit biological warfare against an entire population because uh, that's what civilized people do. Um, yeah. But David, let's think about that for a minute, right? You come to this place. There are other people there, living there. They have their own systems of government. They have their own ways of... They have what we would consider culture today, right? Their own governments, their own way, culture, their own ways of raising children, their own... So if we look at what we do, they have their own Christmas, their own... Easter, their own Thanksgiving. So I'm just saying that broadly to say they have their own stuff. Their society is functioning and is working for them. And you must have some really kind of audacity to show up in a place like that and say, you know what? You have all the stuff already worked out, but what I have is better. Even though I don't know you, I don't know your language, I don't know what you do. It, it's almost yeah. as if that wouldn't work if we invaded the Mideast as well. Um, right. <laughs> which is another topic entirely. I don't want to keep you oh, all yeah. day. But, um, absolutely. But yeah. So then you show up and then you, of course, you don't have the kind of immunity that we do. No, we don't have syphilis. How about that? How about you didn't say that? Don't bring syphilis to us. We don't have gonorrhea. Don't bring gonorrhea to us. So there are people, there are people that are saying, well, yeah, but the natives were savages and blacks just can't get it together. And the Muslims, they're going to come and take over. And the Mexicans, they're lazy and they're going to take my job at the same time. They're the problem. But as your book explains, we didn't think white people were white enough either. Well, mm-hmm. some white people. Yeah, well, some white people. And so, um, for example... When like I Eastern te- Europeans and stuff like that, right? Right, Oh, absolutely. Right. When I teach... Um, so I have tried to dive into that part, but I'm, I'll tell you. When I teach um, diversity in higher education... One of the, the things I always encourage my students to do is watch the documentary, How the Irish Became White. Right. Because there's a sense among white people in the United States that whiteness has, is a worldwide thing. And that is natural. When we're a part of any society, we view the world through the lens by which we're raised. And so unless we get outside perspective, 
that is challenging that view and we're open to that challenge, then we never really go beyond what our society is telling us, right? And so I talk about when the Irish, for example, there was a planter in Georgia and they were, the governor approached um, them looking, approached the plantation, looking for people to work on the roads. And one of the white planters said to the governor, use the Irish, my slaves are expensive. Right. So there's also the book on how the Jews became white, how the Italians became white, to help white people understand that whiteness is a construct, particularly within a United States framework. And so when you apply the, that, that whole thing to people, it's a way of differentiating yourselves from other groups. It's a way of saying you're special and you're different. And whatever you do, whatever you know, the things that you like, the way you look, because that's also critical when we talk about skin bleaching in many developing countries, et cetera, and the wearing of weaves and wigs. It's also a critical part of this discourse about how beauty is constructed. And there's tons of research out there, even on Beyonce, and how they whiten her complexion when she's on the cover of certain magazines. So I'm saying this because I want your viewers to know that what we're talking about is rooted in research. It's not anecdotal. And so, of course, it, there is a sense that everybody else is bad and we're good because that's how, that's how you create a divide. That's how you create a difference. And that's how you create supremacy, i.e. white supremacy. Right. And what? And to echo Winsome, uh, there's a film, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's film, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Leonardo DiCaprio uh, starred in Gangs in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, that was more of the events that led up to the 1863 New York draft riots. Uh, but the, the prominent theme in that film centered on this concept of whiteness. Uh, and particularly the othering of the Irish. And so uh, for listeners, that's something that uh, if you truly don't, if you truly want to understand uh, how whiteness is constructed in this country, uh, I would encourage you to watch that film. Uh, and if you're looking for something much more from an entertainment perspective, but I think it, it hits the nail right on the head. It's pretty accurate in terms of, of, of the narrative surrounding what it meant to be white, particularly in 19th century U.S. America, United States history. What, and I want to speak on one more thing, but Absolutely, again, Travis. yeah, yeah. I think about again, we have to look at patterns, patterns, and also just timeline. So if we look at you know white Irish immigrants that came to this country in the 1830s, 1840s, due to the potato famine, and were treated as, and again, excuse my language, quote unquote, the white niggers in this country. But the irony is, is that what does it mean to be, I mean, the question we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be white in this country? And what did that transformation look like? Now, viewers, I would encourage you all to look at specifically uh, about 140 years later in Boston, Massachusetts, 
you had the Boston bus crisis. And it was uh, the sons and daughters and granddaughters and great-grandchildren of these Irish immigrants who were holding up swastika signs, you know, referring to their Black classmates as niggers, attacking them, throwing rocks at their cars, et cetera. And the irony is, is that they finally transformed into this concept of what it means to be white. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's what's the what, what that's what's hypocritical, but also uh, fascinating in terms of the concept of whiteness in this country. It's it's a social construct, and people need to come to terms with what that means. It also speaks to Travis, and that is that's a great example with the Boston riots is how vitriolic it is. And one of the things the documentary also looks at, and I would encourage your listeners to check it out, is that uh, the Irish was portrayed as monkeys in the newspaper in the yep. in the newspaper in the United States before black people were. Yep. And when I talk about this, oftentimes my white students like their eyes bug out because when they think about who's portrayed as monkeys and eating bananas, even our President Obama, they did that to him in Europe, it's always Black people. And I say to them, when you buy into these constructs, I don't know if I should blame it on you or blame it on the American school system, but it's because you don't know your history. God, that's interesting. The Basically, all the things that you're afraid of whether it's Muslims or, you know, uh, Mexican immigrants, all of those things that you're going to say, well, they're going to do this and they're this. Mm-hmm. Tur- turns out the same thing was said about Jews and Catholics and Irish. And the and- Irish and the Italians and the Portuguese. Absolutely. Right. So that's what we want them to think about. It's almost as if we, that we can actually coexist in one society but for whatever reason, someone has to prove their whiteness first. Um, oh, yeah. oh, I, I want to go back to, I want to just reflect. I mean, I just thought about this. Uh, maybe that's the problem with Trump, our sitting president. As we think, as he goes back to his family tree of how his grandfather arrived in this country and what were, what was the sentiment of, German immigrants in the 19th century United States. We can draw some interesting comparisons there with Trump as that Irish protester in Boston in the 1970s. And it's like they're projecting and maybe they're projecting their insecurities and maybe they're projecting to a Anglo-Protestant system which they yearn to be part of to get get these privileges. Maybe that's what this is all about when we're looking at this. So I I think about Trump every day uh, in terms of like what's happening in terms of race relations in this country. And maybe that's it. Maybe he's projecting. I don't know. Trump insecure? That doesn't seem like him. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) So... Well, I guess we got political in this episode, which is great. I mean, look, we are in an election year and 
we're in a presidential election year and there are some serious shit popping off in our country. And we need to be talking about this as citizens. That's why we have a democracy. Otherwise, we don't need to be talking about we're the greatest country, the greatest democracy. If we can have serious conversations about the shit that divides us in a serious way without being like, oh, I don't want to say it that way because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. No, we need to talk some serious shit if we're going to really be as great as we can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we should always be trying to get better um, at this Absolutely. idea This idea of, oh, no, we perfected it years ago, and now we just need to keep exactly the way we are. That's absurd to me. Uh, it, to me, that's un-American. Um, David, your, your, your podcast is pod is going to save the world, right? We're not going to yeah. save the world if we're trying to be like, oh, I don't really want to say that. That's the kind of why we're why we're in the position we're in today. If we're gonna say it, save the world, we need to keep it one hundred with people out in these streets. Let's do it. Uh, and one thing that I found, another thing I found interesting. It's a it's a really interesting book. Is that a lot of times this sort of um, othering bigotry was stoked by corporations or the rich, the one percent, however you want to call it today and then poor whites middle class whites were kind of swept up in the propaganda of it all Mm -hmm. and so you have white people going against their own self-interests because the corporate masters have convinced them that um why do we (laughs) why do we let this happen you're not an n right (laughs) exactly Exactly. There's actually and, some research around that. About, I mean, at where they were talking about after after um, segregation, where the whiteness, the construct people who are trying to uphold that white supremacy notion, started to build in this whole idea that you may be poor, but at least you're not a. Go right. ahead, Travis. <laughs> Right. Um, I think about, you know, it's similar to what President Johnson said, you know, the quote, you know, of convincing the lowest white man that he's better than the best colored man, quote unquote. And so. uh, And again, it goes back to what does it mean to be white and, you know, is whiteness an illusion? in terms of, are they the best athletes? Are they the best of the best? Are they the builders of several? And I mean that, I mean that in tongue in cheek, that, that came off kind of funny. Uh, but are they the, are they the architects of civilization? It, it reflects this narrative, this, this reassuring narrative uh, to white supremacists, to neo-Nazis, uh, to daily, everyday white folk that you know, the systems that they exist in is built as a reflection of them. I mean, even God <laughs> looks like them. And so therefore, um, we must be the chosen people. We must be special. You know, we must have a per- paternalistic attitude and take care of these others in many respects. So certainly when we look at the the, the, the economic differences uh, from an economic perspective that 
you know, if if white supremacy is grounded in all these issues, certainly poor whites are fundamentally, and again, not all poor whites, but just broadly speaking, will have these have these issues with coming together with people of color. Well, it seems to me like white supremacy is based on white insecurity. Um, yep. A, a couple of more. Th- it is. Well, look, uh, we have we have Wayne Gretzky. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh God, that's great. <laughs> so, uh, uh, a couple of things that I want to touch on uh, before I let you guys go. Uh, one is I've heard of intergenerational trauma, mm-hmm. where. The, the, again, kind of going back to people saying, you know, lift yourself up by your bootstraps, the, whether it's slavery or Jim Crow or, you know, current issues, right? Yeah. What is the generational trauma impact of everything that's come before, including last week? Okay. So if we look at that research, it actually came out of, um, Holocaust survivors. And that was when they realized that trauma is actually trauma is actually passed down in the womb. And so for those of us who are coming from marginalized backgrounds, we are born with this trauma without even knowing it. Once it starts manifesting itself in our daily lives, then now we're trying to cope with it and figure out why is this happening and where is it coming from? But fundamentally, David and David and listeners of this podcast, if you all are listening to this because you really want to save the world, is rooted in white supremacy. This idea that somehow everyone else is different and we are special, it's it's fundamentally problematic. And if we are going to move forward as a world and as a society, we have to understand that, but also understand that there are people in the white community that are also dealing with generational trauma. And why isn't that an issue? Because people don't want to accept that uh, trauma exists. Absolutely. I've talked about my own issues, um, on this show. It's why the show exists, uh, because I want to make a difference, um, about my my own, uh, mental health issues and, uh, the suicidal thoughts that I've had in the past. And, you know, anyone who's gone through depression, like I have knows there are certain things that trigger you and can, and kind of exacerbate those feelings and it never occurred to me until just now that there's something passed down generationally that is constantly almost, I guess, trigger. and correct me if I'm wrong, but almost a constant trigger for African-Americans of, I could go outside and, and die. I, you know, oh, where, yeah. right. you know, that's, right. that's not something that, that's not a part of my trauma of I'm going to go outside and get shot for just standing there, uh, mm-hmm. which I mean, I guess theoretically I could, but it's not likely to happen. But that's actually like ingrained from the womb. Wow. Um, yeah, as as Lady Gaga said, we were born this way. 
<laughs> love it. See, we, we're talking Lady Gaga. We're talking Wayne Gretzky. We're got, no, no, we got we, we, we white can, people. We got you covered. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, don't melt down on me. Um, and so one last thing, and I'm I'm positive. I'm convinced that you guys have the answer to this question. I know it. <laughs> what does the future hold? How do we take the next step to become a more perfect union? Go ahead, Winsome, first. Go ahead. Uh, so as I've shared with other people who've asked me this, I, I am pessimistically optimistic. Mm-hmm. Meaning, uh, I, I, I can't see it. I can't see it anytime soon. I'm sorry, and I'm, I'm not gonna be the. Oh, you know, we need to end on a positive note. We need to, you know, at the end of the day, there are still good people in this world, and blah blah. Yeah, there are good people in this world, but my people always seem to the one to be the one that's dying at the hand of the police dying at the hand of of a pandemic, dying at whatever the fuck it is. And so, no. Until people, white people, and I'm not talking about all white people, listeners, until we recognize that there's some shit popping off and that we need to have some hard conversations, shit is not going to change. Right. And to echo Winsome, I mean, we have to be a, I, I, I yearn for a perfect union, <laughs> just like anyone else. But at the same time, you know, one has to be realistic. And if you just step back, you know, and I'm just paraphrasing, you know, the oppressor is not going to give the oppressed their playbook for success. Nope. Yeah. Right. That, that. It realistically, you know, and we've seen this again. Let's go back to the history of this country. We've seen this over and over and over again, um, where there are opportunities, but our people of color, our marginalized people are, are, are given opportunities, but to a certain extent, if there is this, these opportunities where they do do extremely well. And again, we can use, I go back to the examples of the reconstruction period where they're breaking these ceilings, these these, these ceilings, there's consequences and likely violent over consequences that come about with this. So yeah, I, I agree with Winsome in many respects. I mean, we should be pushing for that perfect union, but you know, people who are in positions of power need to do their homework. They need to take responsibility to dismantle the present institution and create an equitable institution where everyone is included. And David, if we look to the law, right, and that's one of the branch of government, it's, it's the courts. And often the courts rely on precedents. What precedents do we have in this country for when we were ever treated as equal citizens? 
I don't know of any. And if somebody has, you know, a black, somebody, one of your listeners might have a black friend who has been treated equitably. And so there is a possibility then great, but I just, I, if we're going to use a law here as reference, there's no precedent. So there's really nothing for me to go from. There is no playbook. Right. So uh, myself and I guess uh, fellow uh, white folks out there, um, we need to do better. We need to recognize uh, where our place is and where and where maybe we should not maybe, and that we should all be working towards uh, that perfect union that we will hopefully someday get, but we're a long, long way from getting there. Um, your book is amazing. Uh, not only was it um, informative and I learned a whole lot from it, uh, I also think it was an easy read. I never felt like it was smarter than I am, if that means. Uh, oh, and, thank you. Uh, yeah. yeah um, sometimes you'll read a book and you'll be like, I don't even think I understood a single word in that last sentence. Um, exactly. You know, this is this is it's plain spoken, but informative. Taught me a lot about history and certainly opened my eyes that maybe the way that I saw the world isn't the way the world actually is, and that maybe I can adjust my viewpoint to be a little more uh, inclusive. I think we all could do that, even those of us who see ourselves as uh, allies. So thank you very much for the service that the book provides. And thank you very much for joining us here to talk about it. Thank David, you thank so you. much. Yeah, Absolutely. this, was, this was amazing. And I hope your listeners in the sci-fi universe will look at what we're talking about through a sci-fi lens and see where those kind of discrepancies are because we know that the literature on diversity in sci-fi is not very complimentary and I'm being generous. Uh, yeah. Uh, we, could, we, have, we have a lot to go there as well. Um, the, 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 um, and I would love to do an entire episode um, or more on Afrofuturism and in all types of different cultures. Um, that's it's 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 a real shame that in the world of sci-fi and the future always tends to look very similar. Exactly. Uh, you know, we have a we we have a couple of of design motifs and say this is sci-fi and people go oh well what about black panther yeah what about black panther what about the fact that you can name one film uh, <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. uh, that's the kind of i'm talking about like david look even in the sci-fi universe we can catch a fucking break <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, a, a, a universe that is designed to be inclusive, but yeah. That's my uh, point. Yeah. I'm saying uh, we can't catch a break. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's hope, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to hope that the success of something, you know, whether it's uh, horror like Get Out or Black Panther with superheroes, I'm hoping that it, it inspires the probably old white men with money that, hey, maybe we can make uh, more than just the uh, six foot tall blonde guy named Chris as the star of our science fiction <laughs> film, uh, <laughs> which uh, Marvel's got a lot of those. Um, 
So thank you again. Thank you very much for being here. Um, I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks again. And thanks to all your listeners. And that is our show. I'd like to thank my guests, the writers and directors of Freaks, Zach Lepofsky and Adam Stein. It is on Netflix right now, so go watch it. And Dr. Travis Boyce and Dr. Winsome Chunu, the editors of Historicizing Fear, Ignorance, Vilification, and Othering. And I'd like to thank all of you for supporting the show. Please reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We'll see you next time. And remember, just like any great franchise, your story isn't over yet.